Specialty Story, session number 165. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm excited that you are here for another week and another amazing guest talking about their specialty in medicine. I started this podcast 165 episodes ago because I realized that medical students aren't exposed to all of the specialties that are out there in medicine. And there are a lot of misconceptions about the medical specialties that they are exposed to because students are exposed to urban academic medicine. Now, our guest today is helping break down some of the myths and misconceptions around plastic surgery with the increase in social media and the amount of plastic surgeons on social media showing what they're doing day in and day out. Dr. Marianne Martinovich is going to talk about kind of the other side of plastic surgery, a lot of the reconstructive side of things. We're going to talk about what Dr. Martinovich loves about plastic surgery, what she doesn't like about plastic surgery, and much more. We start the conversation by talking about how Dr. Martinovich first became interested in plastic surgery. So I became interested in plastics somewhere between my second and third year of med school. Um, We had a student interest group for surgery where you could go shadow. Um, And so I had shadowed a general surgeon doing mastectomies. And I found myself being much more interested about what the plastic surgeons were doing to follow the mastectomy um, than the general surgery portion itself. Um, my third year, I was able to do a subspecialty rotation in two different fields. And so I chose plastics to be one of them. Um, and, and I just found myself so interested with, you know, the fact that every day we were doing a different surgery on a different part of the body. Um, and there was really no kind of routine element to it. Everything was, you know, you get to be creative and come up with these solutions to these problems that other people have not been able to fix or don't know how to fix. Um, and I think kind of the, I guess, I don't want to say the breaking point, but I remember that, you know, I was a third year student and there was like a Friday evening and a case was going kind of late. We were reconstructing a chest wall defect. And my chief resident said, listen, this is going to go on for a while. You can go home. And I had friends that had plans that evening. And I said, I don't want to. I want to stay and see the rest of this case. And that's when I kind of knew I'm hooked. This is what I think I want to do with my life. (laughs) Yeah. One of the early decision kind of forks for students is diagnostic versus surgical subspecialties or specialties. What was the, the surgery side of things for you that drew you to? to the operating room? So, I mean, I think I have a little bit of an interesting background in the sense that um, prior to medical school, I actually spent a few years doing clinical research in cardiology. And that's what I thought I was going to do with my life because I was familiar with it and I found it interesting. Um, And I think as kind of time went on and I had you know, exposure through various clinical settings, I realized that I wanted to do something hands-on in addition to kind of critically thinking about things. Um, 
And one of the things I think people don't appreciate as much with plastic surgery, but you know, you get these problems that don't have easy solutions. And so it's quite a mental exercise to be able to critically think through like, well, what's my algorithm going to be to how to fix this? And what are my options? And so um, for me, at least, I find that it kind of combines the best of being able to work with your hands, but also being able to kind of think on your feet um, and, and, you know, critically come up with a solution. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around plastic surgery? Well, I think for better or worse, unfortunately, social media, <laughs> you know, has uh, has made plastic surgery look glamorous. And I think even for myself, before going to medical school, I thought of it as just really aesthetics. You know, I didn't appreciate um, the reconstruction. I didn't really appreciate how much a plastic surgeon was capable of doing, um, you know, you know, we train doing hand surgery, we train doing, you know, facial um, fractures and reconstruction, we work on kids, we work on adults. I mean, there's really no inch of the body that we are not, you know, skilled to be able to handle in some capacity. And so um, I think most students aren't really aware of kind of the, the breadth of the field. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Miami. Yeah, right. <laughs> what, um, what, what skills or traits or personality qualities do you think lead to someone being a good plastic surgeon? So, I mean, certainly an attention to detail. Um, you know, a lot of what we do, you know, no matter how good you are um, in the operating room behind the scenes, you know, what the patient looks at at the end of the day is how does my incision look? What is the appearance? What is the contour? Um, so you have to be precise and you have to be meticulous and you've got to be willing to, you know, spend that extra 10, 15, 20 minutes to put in that perfect suture as opposed to having the philosophy, I just need to be done with this surgery and get out of there. Um I think a good plastic surgeon is patient because, you know, you really have to assess what your patient's expectations are. Um, a lot of people, you know, come in hoping for or wanting something to look a particular way, and that may not be realistic. And so you have to be able to convey, this is what, you know, I'm capable of achieving. This is what this is going to look like. Um, and then I think there's a big element of needing to have kind of a creative side and, you know, people will often ask me, well, do you have an artist background? No, not formally. You know, I don't paint. I don't sculpt. I don't do anything particularly exciting in any of those realms. But I do love, you know, thinking about, well, how am I going to put this together? How am I going to, you know, recreate something? And so you have to kind of be able to, you know, on your feet quickly think about um, addressing, you know, various surgical wounds and, and problems. Yeah. You mentioned social media kind of glamorizing the aesthetic portion of plastic surgery, but what are some of the bread and butter cases that you see as a plastic surgeon? Um, so I do a lot of breast reconstruction. I take care of women after mastectomies, um, you know, recreating essentially for them, um, you know, a breast mound and kind of restoring their confidence and their appearance. Um, I do a decent amount of skin cancer reconstruction. So um, after either, you know, a dermatologist or a Mohs surgeon or a general surgeon has, you know, resected a large area on their face, then I get to kind of come up with ways to fix that. 
Um, I do a decent amount of breast reduction. So, you know, women of all ages who suffer with back pain and, um, you know, just chronic discomfort from large breasts. Um, I do a little bit here and there of kind of various, um, you know, wound reconstruction. So sometimes, you know, paraplegics who have wounds from pressure injuries, um, other people, you know, who have wounds from, you know, traumas or things like that. Um, and then I do see my share of kind of aesthetic stuff. Um, I think, you know, in today's day and age, um, there has been a lot of, uh, I don't want to say hype, but uh, a lot of concern about breast implants and whether or not they're causing people to be ill and sick. And so I do a fair share of removing implants or revising implants because women have concerns about them. What does a typical day look like for you? So I operate Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, and you know, some of those cases are my own independent cases. Some of those are joint cases with other general surgeons. And then Tuesday, Thursdays, I'm in clinic all day. Now, you know, the joy of, um, being a surgeon is obviously you have to be flexible because you take call and sometimes things come in and you have to add things on or, you know, adjust accordingly. So now in you, a given week, it can vary. <laughs> you, you mentioned a, a joint surgeon with a, a general joint surgery with a general surgeon. What does that look like? I think a student hearing that will go, well, what, what's a plastic surgeon doing with a general surgeon operating at the same time? What does, what does that look like? What are you doing together? Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it really can depend. Um, like I said, you know, a general surgeon could be resecting a skin cancer and doing a lymph node biopsy for say a melanoma. Um, and then I'm coming in to kind of close whatever hole or defect they create. Um, my breast surgeon that I primarily work with, she, you know, has a general surgery background, but specializes in breast surgery. So she will do a mastectomy and then I'll come in and put in an implant or a tissue expander to recreate a breast. Um, a lot of times we work really closely together when women are having lumpectomies. So part of the breast tissue is being removed. Um, and then I get to kind of rearrange the remaining breast tissue to um, fill in that defect and make it look more normal and less deformed. Did you play with Play-Doh a lot as a kid? I did not, but I guess I should have. <laughs> I think that goes back to the, are you an artist kind of uh, yeah, question yeah. that comes. That's interesting. So you mentioned call. What does that look like for a plastic surgeon? Are there, are there types of calls where you have to come in or are you mostly doing home call? What does that look like? Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm fortunate. I work in a community hospital setting. So I do take um, a week of call a month and that's usually for kind of facial trauma, um, mostly lacerations or things that, you know, are cosmetically sensitive that, you, you know, people want a plastic surgeon to repair. Um, my call is from home. So, you know, I, um, I call it, I come in when I am requested to generally by the ER. Um, and you know, they're pretty good about taking care of most things on their, their own, but you know, you get a dog bite or a more complex laceration that requires, you know, just a little bit more, um, soft tissue handling. Um, and then I come in for that. Now, obviously, in an academic setting, you know, call can be quite different. Um, and usually for plastic surgeons, you're either taking um, trauma call for hand injuries or for face injuries. That's kind of the division of the two. Yeah. When I was a, a pre-med, I was in 
in Maine and, and got sucker punched in a bar fight and had a big oh laceration on my face. Luckily it was in my eyebrow. And so they asked if I wanted a plastic surgeon to come in. I'm like, nah, they're like, we have a PA here. I'm like, I'll let the PA yeah, do it. They need training yeah. too. Uh, luckily it's hidden. So nobody can yeah, see it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know, for better or worse, unfortunately for like, you know, most, most males having a, a scar is like a story and it builds character and looks yeah. interesting and, and not quite always the case for yeah. uh, females. Harry, <laughs> Harry Potter made scars cool too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, you, you mentioned working at a community hospital, what was the decision for you to work out in the community versus being in an academic center? In all honesty, um, it was it was really based on my personal life. So um, my husband is also a physician and he was um, in fellowship. And the joys of a dual physician household is that, you know, you don't always get to um, predict and control, um, you know, where you train, how long you train, all that kind of stuff. So we actually did long distance for two years while I was finishing my residency. Um, and he was still in fellowship. And so at that point, I decided that, you know, my personal life mattered, say, more than kind of my professional. Um, and what was important to me was just being in the same city as him. Um, and so there happened to be an opportunity um, at a community hospital. And, you know, at first, I guess I had envisioned myself kind of staying in academics, um, just because I liked the thrill of, you know, having a lot of variety and doing something different every day. Um, but I think in all honesty, you know, my community practice, I have a lot more kind of autonomy over the things I do, my relationships with patients, and really at the end of the day, a better quality of life, I think. Um, and so for me, you know, at this stage of my life with a young family, it really works well for me. Speaking of family, do you feel like your your job, your specialty gives you the the life outside of medicine, outside of the clinic and hospital that you want? I do. Um, and I think, you know, when I was a medical student, I remember telling my friends that I was going to do plastics and they said, are you nuts? Like <laughs> you're going to do a six year residency. Like that's going to be terrible. Now, don't you want I, a family is the typical right? response. <laughs> well, and my mom said, how are you going to ever meet anyone? You're just going to be working all the time. Um, Needless to say, it all worked out. But the yeah. irony is, is all of those friends who did three or four year residencies, they all went on to do some fellowship. And so at the end of the day, we all finished <laughs> around the same time. Yeah. Um, you know, I think historically plastics, like most surgical subspecialties has been very male dominated. Um, but, you know, there are more and more women paving the way. And I think as a result, people appreciate that, you know, we want a work-life balance and that's becoming much more feasible. Um, and I think, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's plastics or any specialty, but, you know, I remember someone saying to me, you know, you can kind of create the path you want for yourself. And I know that sounds unrealistic when you're a medical student and you're just kind of used to someone telling you what's the next step you're supposed to do. But it's true. You know, you don't have to settle in your first job out of residency. You don't have to, you know, do what someone tells you to do or practice the way you trained. You have, you know, that, um, you know, the, the ability to kind of choose your destiny, so to speak. Yeah, that's good. Talk about the, the training path to become a plastic surgeon. What does that look like? 
So um, historically, it used to be that you had to do a five-year general surgery uh, residency and then follow that with a fellowship in plastics, um, which was three years. That has kind of come out of favor. And now most programs are an integrated residency, which is six straight years. You do some general surgery training early on, you know, through different rotations just to kind of get that experience and that background. Um, But you're kind of you know, homed within the plastic surgery division. And then once you finish your residency, you have several options. You can, you know, either start practicing like I did, um, or you can do a fellowship. And most fellowships are a one-year fellowship. um, And the various pathways are either hand surgery, craniofacial surgery, which is usually dealing with, you know, pediatric congenital deformities, um, microsurgery, which is, you know, learning how to um, essentially transfer free tissue from one part of the body to another, um, or an aesthetic fellowship. Those are kind of the four, four routes that people go. So if someone doesn't know plastics is what they want to do and they go do a general surgery residency, is that fellowship pathway option still there for them? It is. Um, there's just fewer of them in the country. Like I think a lot of programs that used to have that have kind of now taken those spots and transferred them to integrated residencies. So it definitely is out there. It just, you probably have to look a little harder for it. Yeah. What, what would you say a student should be doing to be competitive for uh, a plastics residency? So I think, you know, obviously the basic stuff, you know, you want good grades, you want good step scores. Um, But I think really what's also really important is plastics is a very small community. Um, When I matched, there were 125 spots in the country for plastics. So you, you know, you go on interview trail and you like see the same people over and over again. And so I think, you know, whatever your home institution is, if you have any interest in just get to know the faculty because they probably know someone somewhere else that you might be interested in going for training and they can make connections for you. And, um, it really goes a long way to just kind of start building that rapport. Um, and I think obviously by doing that, you know, if you can get involved in doing research projects and things like that, it helps you stand out from, you know, the rest of the applicant pool. Do you have any recommendations for the osteopathic student listening to this who may be interested in plastics to overcome any sort of negative bias out there? Yeah, I mean, I I know um, there are several plastic surgeons out there who do have DO backgrounds, and I may not be the best to kind of guide on that pathway, but certainly, you know, nowadays with Google and social media and people having Twitter handles, I mean, you can easily find a lot of these individuals, and I'm certain that they would have good recommendations about Um, I know there are a couple um, osteopathic plastic surgery residencies that are obviously, you know, separate from our, um, you know, American Board of Plastic Surgery. Um, That has that has gone by the wayside now. So, the, yeah, so there's the, the single accreditation now is in place. Okay. So, so now there is no longer, as of 2020, no longer a DO kind of shielded specific residency programs anymore. That is cool. I was yeah. going to say, I feel really old, but I'm glad it's from this year. <laughs> it's, br- it's brand new. It was just this year. Okay. Yeah. There, there was a, a lot of people call it the, the merger, the, the yeah. AOA and ACGME merger. Uh, it was more of a, a threat from the government from what I was, oh, yeah. what I've been yeah. able to find. Uh, the government basically is like, why are we managing two different residency processes? Fix it. So will they, 
all will there be a new organization that will kind of combine the no it's all under acgme yeah so acgme it's all single accreditation so uh the do specific programs have now opened up to mds and uh, obviously mds have have always been open to do's uh so it'll be interesting to see with the first year a lot of programs have made the switch before this year but this year was the final year to to finally make the switch so we'll see as the data comes in how how students are doing but that'll be interesting Um, so talk about for the, the future primary care provider out there, or, or maybe even subspecialist who refers to plastics a lot. What do you want them to know about what you do day in and day out to, to help them help their patients? Yeah, I think, you know, and I, and I'm certain it's the same, um, you know, just for people who aren't in medicine, but people just aren't always aware of what I am capable or what we're capable of doing. And, you know, so, um, you know, I'll, I'll see a patient, um, you know, say who, uh, this is a perfect example, a patient I did breast reconstruction on and she had, you know, heavy, um, upper eyelids, which were impairing her vision. And she said, Oh, um, you know, my primary care doctor is going to refer me to an ophthalmologist. And I said, well, you know, I do that procedure, right? I can take care of that for you. And she's like, Oh, I had no idea. Mm. So, you know, I think, um, just letting people know that, I mean, really head to toe, if there is, if there is a hole, if there is a, you know, a defect, if there is a problem, I mean, you know, we kind of master taking care of, you know, skin issues and reconstructing stuff. So yeah, I think, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. There are a lot of plastic surgeons who, as they progress in their careers, you know, they don't want to do some of the less glamorous stuff. They want to do more of the aesthetic stuff. And I think we kind of get a bad rep from that, you know? So mm-hmm. Most of us who are, you know, earlier in our training or in academic settings, you know, we tend to be open to kind of managing all sorts of different, you know, complicated issues. Yeah. What are the specialties you work the closest with? Um, Breast surgery, dermatology, general surgery. Yeah. Those big ones there. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into plastics? Ooh, um, I think one of the things that no one really prepares you for is, you know, when you're in training, um, you get this progressive responsibility and by your chief year, you feel on top of the world. There is like nothing you can't handle. You have no doubts about yourself. You're just super confident. You're ready to like not have to run anything by anyone. You want to do it yourself. And then you get out into the real world and you just completely start doubting yourself. Like something that you would have never questioned when you were a trainee, all of a sudden you're like losing sleep over, oh my gosh, is this the right decision? Did I think, you know, am I, you know, should I have done something else? Um, and it's very nerve wracking. And I think, you know, in talking to a lot of colleagues who, you know, have been in practice just now a couple of years, the imposter syndrome is real and people don't really talk about it very much. Um, but you know, it is, it can be paralyzing. And I had an attending when I was a resident say to me, the only surgeons who don't have complications are the ones who don't operate enough. And it's so true. Um, But at the same time, when you have something that doesn't go how you planned, um, it's devastating. And, you know, you can take that and say, oh, gosh, I'm, 
afraid to do that again, or I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. But you have to kind of find it within yourself to say like, okay, well, let me evaluate the situation. You know, is there something I could have done differently? Yes. Okay. Or no, um, I don't know. This was a bizarre random occurrence, but I have to keep moving forward. And, um, and you just kind of have to keep pushing yourself really. Um, and you have to not be afraid to ask for help. You know, I, to this day will sometimes, you know, call one of my old attendings and say, Hey, you know, can I run this by you? What do you think about this? You know, it's, um, you're not just on an Island by yourself where no one's there to, to help you. Yeah. I, I did a, an, a call today with a student for a different podcast and her question was, how do I deal with imposter syndrome? Yeah. And, and I got into a place where I, I, I typically don't talk a lot about, but, but really from a physiological level, there's no difference between what you feel with anxiety versus what you feel for excitement. And, and yeah. so this mental switch of like, oh, I'm anxious to do this. Well, but no, well, be excited. You're learning something new. You're doing something different. Um, and just trusting yourself that you're hopefully prepared to, to do that thing. Yeah. That's fun. Um, yeah. What do you like the the most about being a plastic surgeon? Um, well, you know, so for me, I work with a lot of cancer patients and you see them at the beginning of their journey when they're, you know, kind of grieving the loss of a body part, coping with this, you know, horrible diagnosis. And then I get to follow them along. Um, and at the end, I get to offer them this really kind of happy, um, exciting, you know, kind of experience that brings them back to feeling like who they are again. And so watching kind of people go through this evolution and and starting to, you know, the patient who comes in and is like never cracks a smile. And then six months later, they're laughing with you and hugging you. I mean, it's just a really rewarding experience to be a part of. That's awesome. What do you like the least? Um, I think and I don't know, this might be for any job or any, you know, you never stop thinking about your patients. Um, you know, it might be my weekend and I'm not on call, but I'm like wondering, you know, did so-and-so like, you know, are they doing okay since I took their drain out? Did they, you know, did their pain get better? Are they still taking their antibiotic or did they stop? You know, it's just, it's constantly on your mind. Um, And I think, you know, in many ways, that's what makes you hopefully a good physician. Um, But it can be exhausting because it's hard to, sometimes it feels like you can just never shut it off. Yeah. You know, I um, I joke when I go on vacation, it's like, I'm still checking emails. I still want to know what's going on, you know, because there's a certain element of control over your practice and making sure people are doing well. Yeah. Do you see any major changes coming to the field of plastic surgery that someone interested should be aware of? I mean, I think, um, you know, insurance is always an issue. <laughs> so, you know, in the early 90s, Congress mandated that breast reconstruction um, was a covered service once a woman's had a mastectomy, which is phenomenal. You know, no one chooses to have cancer. No one chooses to voluntarily have their breasts removed. So we should be able to restore that. Um, but I do think that, you know, there are decisions that get made and, you know, even recently I had a patient with cancer and she wanted a lumpectomy and I was going to do a kind of an oncoplastic reduction where I I reduced the breast at the time of the lumpectomy to kind of fill in the defect and her insurance company denied it. And they told me that, um, that their manual said I could only do this procedure if the tumor was in one location of the breast. And so, which is ridiculous. 
Um, so, you know, I had to write a letter and I had to support, you know, various like manuscripts and literature that sh- stated that this is a well-known prescriptor and it's well-described and, you know, these are the indications. And it finally got appealed, but it was just, it was such a headache. It was so much extra work for me. It was so upsetting to the patient because she thought she wasn't going to be able to have, you know, the procedure she wanted. Um, and so I just, I foresee a lot more of those headaches happening and, I'm certain that's in all specialties. You know, one of the things that has just come up for us um, is that our notes are going to be public to patients. <laughs> Yay. Yay. I mean, you know, I document for the sake of another provider reading my documentation, not for a patient to understand. So yeah. I'm certain that's just going to turn into a funnel of phone calls and questions. You know, what did this mean? Or what was that abbreviation? Or, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, hmm, that's fun. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I, I. That's happening a lot. I I've, I know there's that big switch. Uh, the the EMRs just allow that that switch so patients can log in and see all their stuff. So yeah. Oh well, we'll we'll see yeah. what the repercussions are when that starts. Right. Um, yeah. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a plastic 100%. surgeon? Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, I love my job. For the the student interested in plastics, maybe even the uh, a female, as you mentioned earlier, right? You're getting a lot of pushback from people like, "Are you crazy going into a surgical subspecialty?" Yeah. Uh, what what final words of wisdom do you have for them? I think just you know know what feels right in your heart and just keep pushing forward and don't let people tell you that you know you can't do something because of some type of I don't know, misconception or societal role, you know, I mean, I, um, there is a, uh, there is a Facebook group and it's called it's surgeons moms group. And there are women and all, you know, cardiac surgery, urology, like every subspecialty you could ever think of. And these are people with families and they're doing their job and they're successful. And so it is, um, it is completely feasible. You just, you know, don't let people put you down or tell you you can't make it happen. All right. There you have it again, Dr. Marianne Martinovich talking about plastic surgery. If you are interested in learning more about plastic surgery, go to plasticsurgery.org, which is the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. As Dr. Martinovich mentioned, plastic surgery is a very small field, a very small number of people match into plastic surgery every year. I'm a huge fan of networking, believe in its power very much. And so if you can go find a mentor, go find someone who can help guide you in your journey, that is something that I would recommend you do. I would start at the American Society of Plastic Surgeons to see if there are any events happening, whether virtual or in person once COVID ends and much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to get more great episodes for free every week. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. 